Welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I am your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante, and we're going to talk about your body, how it heals itself, and how it takes care of itself. Our episode today is going to be fascinating. We're talking about lymphatics, and when I got into lymphatics, I was really thinking an image of a river comes to my mind. In particular, the Mississippi River running through the heartland of the United States. Now, if you are familiar with the Mississippi River, it drains a significant watershed from the Dakotas to Ohio, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And there is a lot of movement on this river. It's enormous. We have shipping that comes through this river, lots of fishing and aquatic life depend on this river as well as waterfowl and even land animals. And I was struck by how this river is vital for the health of the United States on a number of levels. And the parallel between this river and what our lymphatics do into, for our body is striking. So Dr. Dante, tell us a little bit about the role that, and the vital role that lymphatics play for us. Gladly. So when we have the body, we think about our circulation. When we talk about circulation, most of the time folks will think about the heart, the lungs, the blood vessels, specifically the arteries and the veins, right? The blood is that thing which nourishes. That blood is that thing that holds the oxygen, the nutrients, whatever we absorb from the gut and so on and so forth, delivers it everywhere all over the body. Now, we talk about the heart and the plumbing and the circulation as plumbing. We use that metaphor a lot. Sure, because it, it, right? it works really well. When people have um, uh, heart blockages, they use the metaphor. They talk about roto-rooters to clean out the, the tubing. They clean out the pipes with a roto-rooter. Yeah, it's a the thing. coronary arteries. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's not, the clean, it's not the most precise metaphor. Metaphors aren't precise anyway, but it's, there's something missing in that. See, plumbing mm -hmm. is metal, mm -hmm. and metal, for the most part, shouldn't be porous. It doesn't leak. And... That's a problem in this idea because we want our vessels to leak. The arteries are leaky. Why? Because it's not quite a pipe that just flushes things to and fro. It's more like a drip irrigation system, like the kind ones like we a, use. a soaker hose. Right, like a soaker about. hose, Yeah. which in North Texas is necessary to keep your house from falling apart in the summer because our houses are built on clay. If you're in Texas, don't forget to soak your house. Just don't forget to turn it off because then... The houses get too soaked. Yeah. That's lymphedema, but that's... That's another issue. That'll be the second <laughs> half of the episode. How's that's that? That's another episode. But, yeah, what ends up happening is our arteries, they leak deliberately because that's how they actually diffuse their nutrition, diffuse their vital whatever they picked up from the outside world into the rest of the body. And the thing is, if you're going to diffuse stuff, if you're going to leak stuff, then something has to be able to soak it up. But not everything gets soaked. It turns out... We have about 14 liters of interstitium. That's 14 liters of interstitial fluid. So what do we mean by interstitial fluid? It's, it's that fluid between the cells. Exactly. That the cells are kind of bathed in, right? That uh, bring the lunch to the cells. Right. And I could say 14 liters. That doesn't mean much to most folks. That's basically seven liters of Coke, seven Coke bottles, essentially. Because most folks know what a Coke That's bottle a lot looks of Coke. like. Yeah. For comparison, <laughs> we only have six liters of blood. So six liters of blood, we have a lot of blood. We have 14 liters of this fluid. And it, you know, it'll travel, it'll move around, it'll diffuse, it'll do its thing, and then you have this stuff left behind that just kind of pulls and collects. And what happens to stuff that pulls and collects? 
when you have an irrigation system, you need a drainage system. Because if you don't drain the field, right, what ends mm -hmm. up happening is you get boggy, you get a swamp, you get um, stagnation. Your beautiful field suddenly becomes a marsh. And marshes are cool, but sometimes you don't want a marsh, you want a cornfield. So what you're saying is then this interstitial fluid is like groundwater, essentially. And if your groundwater becomes too saturated, you have too much rain as we've seen recently in some areas, then that water can no longer be soaked into the ground and floods. And unless we have something to drain that groundwater, then everything becomes soaked and everything dies. And that is what our lymphatics do. That is the function they perform. They are a part of our circulatory system that develops parallel to the veins and arteries. And what they do is they take in all that leaky fluid. They take in all of that stuff that was pushed out from our intracellular, uh, from our blood vessels into the tissues. And then they soak it all up and bring it right back into circulation to be recycled, replenished, and brought over all anew. It's the idea of, we talk about the Mississippi River metaphor, let's make a, let's make a lake instead. Okay. Right? And um, the lake will still do its thing. The lake will still stream out and distribute nutrients. But if there's nothing to replenish the lake, what does the lake do? It dries out, becomes a desert. Deserts aren't really that lively. I mean, there's wind and stuff and lizards, but it's not the most vibrant thing in the world. It doesn't support all that much life. Exactly, because there's no water. So the lymphatics for our circulation is something like what the rain does for a lake. Does that make it replenishes, sense? Yeah, it replenishes the lake. And then, you know, for a, every good lake, you need to have both an input and an output. Otherwise, the lake becomes too salty, and then that kills things as well. So the lymphatics, you could say that the input to the lake is the circulatory system. The output of the lake is the lymphatics that allow to maintain a balance of nutrients and minerals. 100%. And therefore, things keep flowing, things keep moving. And as long as things keep moving, man, good things happen. Yeah, movement is life, and life is movement. So there's actually um, an idea came up, an image popped up into the head, specifically when we talked about North Texas and leaving your soaker hose on for too long. Sometimes one of the coolest things we can do to display what happens when things, what things do is by showing what happens when things don't work. There was this disease process from Ripley's Believe It or Not back when I was a kid, and I thought it was the wildest thing in the world. It was elephant, elephantiasis, which is a misnomer because it implies a different thing, but essentially there's a mosquito out there somewhere that carries this parasite, and when it bites you, the parasite moves into your lymphatic channels, and, and it, it proliferates. It can drain. Right, right. And what happens when you can't drain? What happens is the areas that are distal to it, the areas that are blocked up, they start to pile on all this interstitium, all this lymphatic fluid, and your that beautiful, supple calf of a human starts to turn kind of elephant-like, hence the name. And elephant you end up with this, yeah, yeah, it gets gray, it gets mottled, it gets thick, it gets calloused, it starts getting heavy, it stops bending. Like, you've touched a human before. Humans bend. Humans have that They're supposed to, Play, right, right. And you end up with a rock. And that's what happens when you don't have the lymphatic thing doing its job. Everything pulls, everything stagnates. If the marsh is the image, if the bog, if the swamp is the image, that's kind of what happens, especially when you can't pump your lymph. Your legs, specifically, begin to weigh down, and they become boggy-like. And they become that's why boggy. That's why yeah, they're boggy. They're painful. They're not functioning the way they're supposed to, and it leads to a poor quality of life. Right. Because you could think, oh, what's the what's the big deal? Okay, so fine. My legs are a little gray. My legs are a little large and keratinized. I like looking like an elephant. Maybe that's your aesthetic. Good for you. <laughs> but yeah, it's well, it's not that simple. What ends up happening is, if if lymph stagnates all of the stuff that that lymph was supposed to drain stagnates too. And your body's 
kind of toxic. You're doing some pretty crazy stuff with your metabolism. Yeah, we're, we're basically filled with chemicals and chemical reactions, and we've got to get rid of all of the byproducts. Right. Otherwise, the byproducts will build up and eventually kill us. Right, right. They, what, we have free radicals, and we have all the mm -hmm. waste products of our various metabolic processes, and if we don't dump those things, they're going to do their thing to whatever the hell they're sitting in. So that inflammatory cytokine that might have protected you from the virus over in your like pinky, now it's still in your pinky, but that virus is dead. Now your pinky is just kind of like inflamed for no reason, and you're like, what and do it's I do? hurting, and you're going, what in the world happened to my pinky? Right, right. You need to get those things out. And if you don't, you get inflamed. And there's a reason why we call it inflamed. It's hot. It's painful, as if it was on fire. Mm -hmm. To be stagnant is to get that burn to get that pain as if you were on fire. That's why we use that word. Words mean things, right? Right, 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 right. And then if you're inflamed for too long, your body actually takes on real damage. And if your body takes on damage, it has to repair that damage. But our body isn't so elegant that it can give you what it lost. If you lose muscle, right, you don't get back muscle. You get back the best thing we got, and that's collagen. And muscle and collagen are not the same not thing. Not the same. They work differently. They act differently. Right. Uh, what I think is very interesting is if this inflammation goes on for too long or if the inflammatory response gets broken, then the body can actually start fighting against itself. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I see the imagery of the Civil War come into this type of uh, situation where the body is not recognizing what's good and what's bad, and it starts fighting against its own cells because the inflammatory response has gone off kilter. And there is a civil war that starts fighting. Uh, and the lymphatics are significantly involved in that. Right. We use the Mississippi River metaphor to talk about nutrition, but look, rivers also carry soldiers. Right. And um, if your soldiers don't know who to fight, they'll just like... They'll fight anybody. Exactly. You, when your job is to shoot, you'll find something to shoot. And if you don't know what the enemy is and what's not, you start getting a little ornery. And I mean that in the most technical sense. If we get too much stagnation, all that ammunition, all that reserve, all that capacity to fight that our body has to protect us from the outside gets turned in on itself, just as you mentioned. And that can be very bad. Yeah. And we've got some really good fighting cells. I mean, we've got macrophages that are just well-trained for this. Right. But what happens when they turn inward? You get pathology. Oh, you, actually, you brought up macrophages. There's even one that's a little more badass than that. We actually have cells called natural killer cells. Oh, yeah, I remember those. Remember those from like first Holy year of med school? Smokes. <laughs> yeah. Those, those, those are just a, uh, make you think of a, a good action movie like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. Predator or Alien? Yeah, maybe both. There you go. <laughs> Wait, Predator versus Alien. <laughs> We're not going there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> But there, there's really something to it. And you figure, okay, so how do you train your body to, not, to know who the enemy is? How do you know who is you and who is not you? That's like the first thing of being an identified self, right? You have your boundaries. You have your where I end and the world begins. Has to start somewhere. And for the body, the most exposed place, the most contentious border is the gut. Oh, yeah. And it's a long border. I mean, it's super long. And... It's very complicated because we've got trillions of friendly bacteria hanging out at the border and they're doing their thing, living their lives, making nutrients for us, making life better for us. And we have a, an immune system that's trying to figure out what's good for us and what's bad. And if we can't differentiate, then that leads to all sorts of nastiness. Precisely. 
Now, there's, there's actually a disease, um, Crohn's disease, if mm. you're familiar with that one. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are, but I guess. <laughs> anyone, else, anyone, exactly. anyone has heard of Crohn's disease or know someone with Crohn's disease, know it can be really problematic and, and troublesome. Right. It's a small piece of hell to have Crohn's disease in all seriousness. It's, um, your body is attacking its own, its own gut. It's, your body is attacking its own border. And it's one thing to say it like that, but remember. It's gut punching itself. Exactly. Inflammation leads to damage. Damage leads to repair. Sometimes the repair is imperfect. Sometimes you don't get back what you lost. Sometimes you end up with bloody diarrhea. And that's like the best you can hope for. Mm. Sometimes you get fistulas. What's a fistula? A fistula is if your gut is supposed to be this channel that runs from your mouth to your rear. A fistula is this little side tributary that goes from that gut to some random place. So you get a hole where you shouldn't have a hole. Exactly. That connects to your gut because of all the pain and inflammation and mm -hmm. damage. And that's a very specific sort of suffering. That's terrible. Well, you can even get a hole into your bladder and it's no fun. Right. Now, for the longest time, our best way to combat Crohn's disease was actually by controlling the autoimmune attack by... Right. You slow down the inflammation, try to uh, stop the cells from attacking each other. Right. We turn off the cells, if you will. And the medicines we use did a really good job at controlling it to some degree. Like um, what? We have corticosteroids and the immunologics. They would shut down the immune system in mm -hmm. order to just... Mm -hmm. Imagine if we have a civil war imagery. This is somehow calling an armistice. But it's not quite an armistice. It's a de-armification of the entire thing. Let's yeah, yeah not, not necessarily a peace treaty, but just a uh, we're not going to fight right now. Exactly. But everybody's still loaded up. Right. And what ends up happening there is you trade away the damage, the battlefield doesn't get torn up, the body doesn't get torn up, but now your immune system has been shut down. What does that mean? That means now anything can come in. And we mean anything. Right. Yeah. And that means some of the friendly bacteria can get into places where they're not supposed to be. Now, these friendly bacteria are great. They do all sorts of wonderful things, but if they get through a leaky gut, right, and they get into your bloodstream, then they can wreak havoc. So the friend all of a sudden does become the foe in that instance. Absolutely. Because we make this imagery almost as if these are, what, nations and peoples talking to each other. But really, it's a series of cells doing their thing and mm -hmm. living in a very, very finely defined symbiosis. But the moment you shut down the ability to differentiate self from other, there's no, there's no, there's no constitution or contract saying that Mr. Friendly E. coli is not going to move into your bloodstream. It just happens to be unable to do it, and it happens to be such that the way we live and the way they live benefit off each other until it doesn't. We call and it an opportunistic it, infection, right? Yeah, until it gets into a place where it has a lot more access to minerals that it needs, and it doesn't then have uh, anything to counterbalance its power, and it quickly can overgrow itself and become a, a problem for our immune system. Right. That's what a, a C. diff infection is. Mm. Because um, the dreaded hospital infection from C. diff, it's not this random thing in the air that just invades in you. It lives in you to some degree, but it lives in the context of all these other things. And when you bombard the body with so much antibiotic that you've destroyed everything, like, the last one standing is going to take over. Right. And if it's yeah. C. diff. You kill, you kill off all of the competition and you give a monopoly to uh, the local environment to Clostridium difficile in this case, and then it becomes a, a very much an issue. Right. And all that because we're trying to combat the Crohn's or whatever autoimmune pathology. Because the cool thing 
about Crohn's, and it's weird to say the cool thing, but it is sincerely yeah, a really well, cool, cool thing. Well, there are cool things yeah. about disease processes. Of course, of course. Which is why we talk about them. We are nerdy doctors, after all. Very much so. There's this um, old data from way back when. Before we knew what Crohn's was, we had to do histology, had to do our pathology. Sure, sure. Crohn's was once conceptualized as a disease of lymph congestion. And that was wild. I never learned that in med school, to be honest. Well, we, we had some biopsies that were showing inflammatory changes, and we could only explain those through lymph uh, stagnation or congestion. We didn't have any more advanced knowledge about microbiota at the time or any of the uh, changes that are associated with right. and the then, Crohn's disease. And then we found out about the mesentery. It was only a few years ago the mesentery got recognized as an organ system in its own right. Right. And the moment we went, hey, there's a thing in your gut called a mesentery, all this old data that we just didn't know what to do with suddenly made sense. It's like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That, that fits. So there's a bunch of GI colleges now talking about how like maybe Crohn's should be recategorized as a disease of the mesentery with GI manifestations as opposed to a GI pathology in its own right. And that's right. a big deal. Well, that would change the way we approach it. That makes sure. it a lymph pathology, which means it's a movement pathology now. Which means there are things that can be done for that. It's strange and frustrating how much movement can actually heal a body. I mean, we know this, in, we know this because, look, we drank the Kool-Aid. We're osteopaths, man. We're, right. we're part we're of all that. about that. But when you see it in fields that are not intuitive, like sports medicine, mm -hmm. makes sense. Orthopedic, yeah, sure. of course. Sure. But when but a GI, GI guy goes, right. <laughs> like, okay. When the pathologist says this is a pathology of stagnation, you go, we okay. got something for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one of those moments where you go, okay, yeah, this is real enough. Okay, we can do something for that. Yeah. Because look, man, we're all flawed and we all have our biases, but when separate fields who don't converge in their strategies all line up and say, hey, that's what's going on, that makes it not necessarily more real, that's the wrong way to say it, but that makes your faith that that's the right way to act that much more profound, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to be talking about how we can get in and really affect change. Now, the great thing about the intestines, the gut, is it has a significant concentration of all of these lymphatic tissues and neurologic tissues. I mean, the gut itself has its own brain, for that matter. Right. So we're going to talk about how we can affect that. And it's, it's fascinating what we can do. Yeah. It's, um, I never really appreciated how much data processing goes on in the gut until doing the research for basically this episode. But if we talk about the body as what? The body as the battleground or the body as the terrain mm -hmm. and the immune system and the lymphatics, all this military metaphor, the question becomes, I guess, what's the central intelligence? What, what tells you what the enemy is? Where does all that processing happen? And yeah, I get it. It kind of makes sense that it's the gut. But then, no, it really... You might say you got a gut feeling about this. You know how much that metaphor <laughs> collapsed the moment I learned all this stuff, man? Sometimes the metaphor is a metaphor. Sometimes the metaphor is a truth you just weren't ready to feel. And somebody goes, hey, by the way, there's a mesentery. And your metaphor suddenly becomes concrete. It's like, yep, it does. <laughs> this show isn't about us. It's about you, your body, and what you can do to find that healthiest version of who you are. That being said, we can't do this alone. So we want to hear from you. What questions and topics matter to you? Honestly, let's have a conversation here. Reach out to us on Twitter, or if you're not about that life, email us at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-B-O-N-E-S-P-O-D at gmail.com.
All right, so now that we've talked a little bit about what's going on with our lymphatics, that river that runs through us, let's talk about what we can do for it. Now, Dr. Still, A.T. Still, if you remember him from the first episode, he at one point said that we as osteopaths, we strike at the source of life and death when we go into the lymphatics. And one thing we haven't discussed so far is how the, lymph, the, the lymphatic system actually causes motion, because we talked about stagnation is death, motion is life. The muscles, especially in the extremities, the arms and legs, play a very important role because we don't have a motor that moves fluid. We don't have a pump like a water pump that's going to send water through a pipe. We have muscles, and those muscles surround all of these channels, these lymph channels, and when you squeeze a muscle, then that increases pressure in those lymphatic channels and pushes the lymph through the system. It's important to note that if you become more sedentary, your muscles lose their ability to contract as forcefully, and then the lymphatics can't move like they should. Then you get buildup of fluid in your tissues, and then you become more sedentary because it hurts to move, and then your muscles become even weaker, making it less possible to pump and it's really a, just a vicious cycle, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we were talking about the, the name of that phenomenon, this idea that we're working so hard to stay moving just because to move is to not die. So we're not really benefiting in the sense of what growing. We're just doing what it takes to not fall back. Um, there's actually a term for that. It's a, a Red Queen's Gambit or a Red Queen's Phenomenon, something of the sort, mm -hmm. for those who remember Lewis Carroll. Um, it was this idea that you're going to run as fast as you can to end up in the same place. And, I mean, that sounds pretty miserable when you say it that way, but... It's like a hamster on a wheel. Basically, it's kind of a hamster on a wheel. <laughs> I found out hamsters don't run on a wheel, by the way. They walk on a wheel, but because there's no resistance, they actually just walk hyper-fast. Huh. And that's actually a different thing. The motor command for a hamster walking on a wheel is running so fast it looks like running to us, but we don't run like hamsters, and hamsters run completely differently. I'm sure glad I don't run like a hamster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll do an episode on walking one day, but that, that, that was just a weird fact what I found out. <laughs> but yeah, the Red Queen's scenario is essentially you are working as hard as you can in order to just stay where you are. And that gambit oh, that was actually used to describe- Feels kind of like medical school. Yeah, basically. <laughs> That sums up life in general, though, because right. you think about all of the, the arms races, the evolution, the battle of our immune system versus bacteria versus this predator versus that prey. And at the end of the day, everything just kind of sets in this weird balance point. And you see balance and you think stillness and you think stillness and you think serene. But there's so much dynamism, so much energy going into just maintaining what you are that it's not that we're still, therefore we're not moving. It's still because of all of the forces at play surrounding that stillness. It's an eye in a hurricane metaphor as opposed to, let's say, a serene field. Well, if, if we're going to go metaphors, we might as well talk about a teeter-totter. It's almost like you're standing astride over the top of a teeter-totter. One leg on each side, you've got to work both sides to stay upright. Essentially. And it's, it's almost like we're walking up an escalator that's going down. If you continue to walk faster than the escalator's going down, you make it to the top. But as soon as you stop, you start going down with that escalator. Right, and once you stop, then you drop, and once you drop, I guess you roll, and rolling is bad, because rolling is falling in this metaphor. Unless you're rolling bones. Welcome to <laughs> Rolling Bones, the osteopathic <laughs> podcast. My name is Dr. Paredes, this is Dr. James Aston. <laughs> but there's something to that. The, um, we move 
because to move is to live, and we mean that in the most technical sense now. Because you can say that like from this really esoteric philosophical standpoint, oh, to sure. live the good life is to, to move well. But you can get to the raw nitty gritty of what it is to not die. What it is to not die is to live, is to move. Mm -hmm. And life is motion, now we'll come full circle. So now we're gonna talk about how we don't die. Right, and I found out this was the coolest thing. And when I learned this, this profoundly changed the way I approach my patient care in all seriousness. Um, the guidelines for act, physical activity are mm. that we need minimum some, guidelines. Minimum right? guidelines, minimum, right? Minimum guidelines are that we need such and such amounts of moderate to intense um, activity. But it was always said in such a way that you can convert moderate and intense activity, which are poorly defined already, by the way. Yeah, thirty minutes a day where you can barely talk. Sure. And what if your point being, moderate activity is this activity that is strenuous, not to the point of, I guess, let's say, a sympathetic response. You're not simulating the fear of a saber-toothed tiger type of deal. No, thank heavens for that. Right, right. And you would think that that's good enough because, hey, I'm pumping my muscles, I'm getting my legs to, to squeeze lymph like tubes of toothpaste and whatnot, this is good enough. But then I looked into the literature and I learned that our organs actually are a little bit different. So we have actually two ways to grow lymphatic tissue. We have mm -hmm. the venous mm -hmm. lymph, or rather we have venous lymphatic growth and we have organ lymphatic growth, which is a different system. Right. And one of those organs is so different from the others that it actually demands intense activity. I found out that your heart, as in the heart, the one in the center of your chest, the beep, the bump bump, the heart. <laughs> the one that's made of muscle. Yeah, um, is also like every other valve, a leaky valve. And the heart, specifically around the epicardial um, arteries, will leak. And when those vessels leak, what ends up happening is there's no way to pump that lymph out through the own heartbeat because there's so much turbulence from the heartbeat that that lymph will stay there. And the only way to move it is through exertion, specifically by taking a massive breath. It takes the power of your lungs to clear the lymph from your heart. And when are you gonna take a wild breath? When are you gonna take a deep, profound inspiration, exhalation, if not for intense activity or yoga? But you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah, 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 yeah. I found out that if you just live tepidly, if you're just lukewarm and moderate in your activities, then what ends up happening is you don't clear that cardiac lymph in your heart. Although your skeletal muscle might be fine, your heart begins to weaken because your heart doesn't get the strain it needs. Well, and that brings to mind, what is the heart made of? It's made of muscle. It's one of the few organs in our body that is made of muscle other than the intestines, right? Right. So it makes sense that we would need to get it pumping to make sure it's healthy. I mean, when, when you actually exercise and you get into the exercise literature, they focus more on heart rate and oxygen consumption rather than time right. spent exercising. So if you can get your heart rate up and you can consume more oxygen, then your heart can be more efficient. Right. It's as if your body, right, it's as if your body adapts to the exertion you give it. So if you live tepidly, if you live moderately, then you end up with a moderate body. And we talk about this red queen thing, that red queen will, will just slaughter the moderate. You need to grow, you need to keep fighting in order, you need to struggle. Right. Turns out life becomes a metaphor for a struggle. And we, we learn that, you know, for you to live, you need to have something to struggle against. Right. There was this, I, I, I cannot remember who said it, but it was one of the most beautiful ideas I've ever played with, is this idea. You ever hear the story about Sisyphus? I can't say that I have. Fair enough. Basically, he stole something from the gods, so he got tied up to a rock, and the crows, no, no, sorry, wrong story, never mind. 
<laughs> Sisyphus had to push a rock up a hill. Right. And okay. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. We're, so I was thinking about we're livers and lymph and anyway. So Sisyphus pu pushes a rock up the hill. And every time the rock gets to the top of the hill, the rock rolls right back down. And his curse is to have to roll that rock up that hill over and over again for the rest of eternity. Right. And then this one guy gets this idea that you should think of him as lucky because he gets the privilege to be noble enough to fight against that rock. Because what else is he going to do? Just what? Procreate, eat some food and take a nap? Like where's the glory in that? Where's the nobility in that? And if humans are that noble, we're so noble that we get to fight the rock. Right. Dwayne Johnson. Right. Well, I hope I never have to fight the rock because he would kill me. I would really love to fight the rock. I'll probably die, <laughs> but I'll touch him. I'll probably die, but I'll touch him. And you will have been able to touch the rock. <laughs> exactly. Call me Sisyphus. All right. Push him around a bit. <laughs> but that's, that's, the, that's the thing about exercise because we can say this really, really low-key thing about how like exercise is good for you. Oh, yeah, it fights obesity. It makes your heart healthy. What does that mean? It's not about like, oh, I get to live, what, an extra 0.4 years over some timeline, over something. Like, humans are terrible at numbers. We need purpose, we need meaning, we need a story. Right. To exercise is to train, to train, to train, to do what? To live how? If you know how you want to live, you know how you want to move, which means you need something to live for in order to want to move. So if you're telling me that you don't move, perhaps you don't want to move, maybe you have nothing to move for. All of a sudden, the stagnation metaphor becomes a depression metaphor. That's, that brings to mind the whole thought of what do you have to live for. I guess we should change that phrase from what do we have to live for to what do we have to move for. What motivates you? What makes you move? What, what moves you? Right. What oh, provides okay. motive what power you? to yeah. you? Yeah. Right. Because this one I know who quoted, it was Nietzsche who said that he with a significant, with a sufficient why will find and endure almost any how. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the deal with what we do. A lot of our osteopathic medicine isn't necessarily just about the manual treatment. A lot of it is. I mean, the manual treatment gets people moving again. That's one of the chief benefits of it. Right, right. But one of our, one of our colleagues, one of our mentors, talked about how she does not like to do this type of work unless the patient is willing to make what she calls a lifestyle change. Right. Which sounds very clinical and dry when you say it like that, but a lifestyle change is a big deal. A lifestyle change is a change in motivation and motivational structure. Well, basically, our healing is directly related to our motivation. Right. And our motivation is di directly related to our results. If we are motivated, then we will get results because we will do what it takes to get them. Right. So sometimes the osteopathic thing to do is to pop a joint back in place so you have the ability to move it again. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the osteopathic thing to do is to help you cycle your lymph, which we can talk about in a minute. Yes, we will. But sometimes the osteopathic thing to do is to actually use that body as a, as a lever. Maybe you're the fulcrum in that scenario to leverage into that soul and figure out what the hell that patient's about. And then you find out what they're about and you're like, hey, you care about this and you're here and you can't do that thing that you're about because you're in pain. Let me help you with your pain because you're not this pain thing, you're that thing. And right now you're in pain, but if we take away this pain, you get to be you again. Well, I, th I think from my own experience, I've only been able to motivate patients when I've been able to connect to what they value. Right. And when they finally value the health that they're looking for, enough that they're willing to sacrifice significant amounts of other fun things to get it, then they start seeing healing. Right. And then we can show them what, we could show them the way there. The possibilities. We can show them the possibilities, right. Or sometimes, and this is where our job becomes 
incredibly dopaminergic for ourselves. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Oh yeah, when a patient comes out and they're really raring to go and they're actually doing better, that, that gives me a rush better than just about anything. Right, it's, it's a kind of a roundabout way to get to the idea, but um, so in bodybuilding, Mm-hmm. There's this idea of the pump, right? And um, there's this idea that the pump isn't the muscle you have; the pump is the muscle you ha- you will gain one day if you keep training the way you are. Mm-hmm. Because, dude, after doing however many reps of I don't know, bicep curls, or I, I don't bodybuild, so it's not my sport. But I know a lot of folks who do and love it. Sure, sure. After you do so many, you know, bicep curls, leg extension, so on and so forth, you're just more swollen than you're supposed to be in a direction you want to be in. You've got a preview of who you can become. You're totally amped. Right, and you that see that who you can be. You see that guy in the mirror and you're like, I can be him. It's like, wait a second, today I am him. Right, and then it, you, know, you lose the pump and then you have to fight to get that back. But eventually, you live in that state where you became that thing that you saw in the mirror mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what we do with our treatment is almost like that. It's, hey, look how good you feel right now. Look what I did, look what we did together. It's incredibly rewarding. And you can keep it if you exercise. And that's key. You, you get that river flowing, but the way to keep it flowing is by continually doing what's pouring fluid into the river to get it to continue to flow. If, if we stopped rainfall in the United States, even the Mississippi would eventually dry up. Absolutely. Rain is... There's a reason why we have a water cycle, not a water, I guess, line because if it was a water line we just never would have made it this far we'd still be primordial ooze we wouldn't even be ooze because we would have dried up and died right. we'd be a dry rock dehydrated yeah water is fundamental to life clearly mm, absolutely we'll get into that in another episode now one of the things i wanted to dive into specifically was there's this really cool thing that um folks don't necessarily know about the power of touch and massage or osteopathic treatment or movement in general we talk about how the skeleton, the skeletal muscle, must contract in order to pump your lymphatic fluid. However, so does touch. Specifically, there's ways you can drain and maneuver your own lymph, and there's ways we can help you maneuver your lymph. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen it over and over how if we can just get the fluid moving a little bit, then significant results can happen. Right. I, I think about someone who comes in and their their lungs are congested. They have pneumonia and COPD, and they can't breathe, and they're coughing up junk, and they're short of breath. They come into the hospital, and we do a few techniques to help improve the lymphatic flow from their lungs, and they significantly improve, and they get out of the hospital quicker, and they feel better. It's, it's amazing what can happen. You would wonder why our Perskini scores aren't even higher. <laughs> We forget to tell people to fill out the, uh, the form. It's because they're stupid. <laughs> now, well, the Prescani scores are not the, yeah, the yeah. and at all. Yeah, they are pretty stupid. They're, the they're pretty, yeah. scores. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's actually really cool. One of the ways we run that lymphatic movement, the lymphatic pump, it turns out, so there's not a lot of literature on the actual techniques of osteopathic medicine. Right. We have a lot about what happens. We have the end outcomes. We have the back pain. We have the financial benefit. But there aren't really deep studies into like, what does counter strain do at the neurologic level? Right. It's kind of hard to study that stuff. Right, right. But we have really good data on lymphatic fluid. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool because it came from this university where we work right now. Awesome. University of North Texas. I guess it's a plug-in or a shout-out, whatever you want to call right, it. Right, whatever. So I had the privilege of... Um, 
working alongside Dr. Lisa Hodge for several months this oh, year. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually what the initial draft of this episode was, Once Upon a Time. Back in the day. Back in the day, in what, four episodes ago. <laughs> so what happens is Dr. Hodge is a brilliant uh, scientist. And I'm not saying that because I work for her. I'm saying that because I got to read her stuff and go, holy crap, she's actually pretty brilliant. <laughs> um, she devised a way to actually map out the rate of um, lymphatic flow. Which is pretty cool. As a function, and living tissue, and living, living, living creatures. Things. Yeah. as a function of osteopathic treatment. So what she would do is she would take, or initially it was mice, and then she moved on to dogs. And then I can't imagine doing manipulation on mice. I'm just telling you. It, it, was, it was pretty weird, not gonna lie. I, I had to read the manuals to figure out like what the technique was, but it was a joint effort between the osteopathic docs and our um, and university and her to kind of make something <laughs> that a, made it, sense. It was a joint effort? It was a joint effort. <laughs> yeah, you try mobilizing a dog's spleen, man. I don't know how their, t how their team did it. I'm just the writer in this story. I'm not a scientist, right, man. Right, right, right. But what ended up happening was you would float a catheter uh, and a transducer into the thoracic duct. Now the thoracic duct is the largest lymph vessel in the body such that it actually is the thing that cycles it back into circulation. Yeah, it's, it's the connection between the lymphatics and the circulatory system. Something about estuaries. Yeah, yeah. Now Maybe it's the Missouri River. I could see that. <laughs> so what ends up happening is if, if the osteopathic thing is affected in moving lymph, what we should see is an increase in lymphatic flow through the, trans, through the thoracic duct. Right, because if we're moving more fluid, more fluid should be going through the duct. Right, so it turns out when we do our, so we have a bunch of cool, weird names for our techniques, like a pedal pump, a splenic pump. Uh, Diaphragm release, yeah. thoracic outlet release, all this kind of cool stuff. Right, this one French guy um, goes by Baral, has a technique called the Grand Maneuver. Yeah, yeah, it's called the Grand Maneuver. That's, that's pretty amazing. That's it, pretty grand. Yeah, it's essentially, it's, it's you pick up the uh, the viscera, like around the inguinal line, and just kind of like lift it all up. It's pretty basic. Like as a technique, it's pretty basic, but the name is awesome. The Grand Maneuver. How did he get so lucky to get such a great name for a <laughs> He's French. We digress. <laughs> yeah. So what ends up happening is, when we run those types of techniques, what ends up happening is, yeah, lymph will actually flow at an accelerated rate through the thoracic duct back into circulation, and we can prove that we're actually clearing lymph at a greater rate. And that's pretty awesome. That's amazing. But that wasn't good enough. She took it a step further. Okay. She showed how long the benefit would last and how profound she quantified the benefit. So what ended up happening was the gold standard is movement, right? But if you can do your splenic pump, your pedal pump, for a certain amount of time, you'll actually get the lymph to cycle for a duration longer than your actual treatment. So let's say if you did it for 30 seconds, I don't know. You try to move your lymph for 30 seconds. You get a little bit of a benefit, but once you stop, the fun stops too. Right, right. And then if you do it for maybe two minutes, you get some more benefit, and the momentum of that lymph flow will keep going for a little while longer. So you've primed the pump, you if you Primed the pump. Kind of like when you suck gas out of a gas can using one of those gas pumps, and then you have to spit it out before it starts flowing and overloads you. The Walking Dead is a great show. <laughs> Um, four minutes, eight minutes, so on and so forth. It turns out if you make a bunch of grad students try to pump a dog's uh, spleen for eight minutes, they fatigue and burn out. Before the spleen does? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so four minutes seem to be the point where everything settles out real nicely. If you do about four minutes of a pump, you end up cycling enough lymph that you actually get, get this inflammatory and immunologic changes. Right, which goes to, uh, along the lines of the findings we found, Back in 1918, the huge flu pandemic, osteopathic hospitals had this amazing 
capability of helping their patients survive. And much of this was based on the lymphatic techniques we're using in the day, improving uh, lymphatic drainage from the lungs and other uh, processes going on in the lungs. And people were living that would have otherwise died. Right. That goes back to one of the, the things that motivated this entire project. It's so easy to think about us as the back pain guys. It's so right. easy to think about us as, oh yeah, they crack bones better than Kairos. Sure, maybe, I don't know. There's really good Kairos out there. There's really bad OMT docs out there. Yeah. So that's not a claim that I can really buy into. But what I can buy into is, dude, we were fighting pneumonia with our hands and winning. <laughs> we were fighting pneumonia with our bare hands. Yeah, that's pretty dope. That's pretty That's amazing. American dope. That's amazing. And it's amazing what these techniques can do for other things. We see it with swelling in the legs when someone's in heart failure. We see it with, like I had said, pneumonia. We see it in other cases of, there's all sorts of different vascular problems that lead to swelling. That we can improve their outcomes and their quality of life because in the end, when it comes to medicine, we're all about quality of life and improving the quality of life of our patients. Right, and sometimes what we do is just show them how good they can feel with these techniques. Once we get them to move themselves, once we get them to appreciate the sensation, once they embody the good of being able to move well, it's hard to say no to it once you felt it. It's basically a high. I want you to get addicted to movement. I want you to get high off of movement. Because what is it? Movement is life. And I'd rather you be addicted to life than addicted to death. Amen to that. So in the end, if you have any troubles with your lymphatics, swelling, even breathing, all sorts of issues, come to us so we can work on your lymphatics. We'll find them, we'll fix them, and then we'll leave them alone. And thanks again for listening to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. It's always great to talk to you. Next episode, we're going to go back to the back. We're going to bring a friend of ours who specializes in a very specific case of back pain. You're going to love it. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rolling Bones Pod or shoot us an email at rollingbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Executive producer Brenda Jaskulski, producer Rob Upchurch, and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Rollin' Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Perez, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care and a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.